And thank you to the team for helping us to worship through song this morning. You know, it's hard to believe, but we only have a couple weeks left of Second Kings. And so I wanted to remind you kind of up front a little bit of some of the themes that we've been trying to see through that book. Because there are a lot of details. There are a lot of like, this king was bad, this king was bad, this king was bad, this king was bad. And it can start to feel like, why doesn't God just write one page that says, the kings were pretty much bad, and then we'll move on. <laughs> so remember, one of the things that this book is doing is that God is making a case against Israel and against Judah for exactly why they're going to end up under judgment in captivity. And so a lot of those details of the evil that's happening is so that by the time we get to the end of the book and the people are in captivity, the reader is meant to be thinking, it's about time, as opposed to, how could this have happened? Because you'll know exactly why by the time we get there. Another key theme that has been woven all the way through this really comes when you remember how Jesus spoke to his disciples that all of the law and all of the prophets and all of the Psalms, everything in the Old Testament was ultimately about him. And so as we see these cycles of bad kings and even a good king peppered in here and there, it keeps reminding us we need a better king. We need the king of kings. And one of the best questions that uh, people have asked me at a number of points during this series I thought was worth explaining because as we've gone through 2 Kings, we've seen how some of those events are also recorded in 2 Chronicles. Like I didn't get enough about the bad kings, we're going to write it down twice. Well, why does God write it down twice and how come some of the stuff in 2 Kings is missing from 2 Chronicles and some of the stuff from 2 Chronicles is missing from 2 Kings and I just, I don't know, I don't know how to understand this Bible. Well, it helps if you think about those two books kind of like the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John each write a biography about Jesus. Well, why do we need four biographies? Why not just have one? Well, what we know about those four authors is they kind of highlight different things depending on the audience that they're trying to reach. For example, when we get into Matthew next year, you'll see that he's talking a lot about prophecies being fulfilled because he's really writing to a Jewish audience who would know all of those prophecies. And they also have a little bit of different themes that they're trying to draw out. So he might tell this story, but he told that parable. He has this miracle, but he has that one. Well, 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles are very similar. They are writing toward different themes. And so as 2 Kings is trying to show us why we need a better king, some of the detail you get in 2 Chronicles is really focused on Judah and the temple. So we hear more about the priests, more about the sacrifices, more about exactly how they did the worship and how they did the sacrifice. And the reason for that is because you also have terrible high priests through these books and a good one here and there. But every high priest ends his high priesthood by dying. <laughs> it reminds us we actually need a better high priest. And for all of the evil that was going on, and even the times that they did the sacrifices the right way, no sacrifice in the entire Old Testament through all of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles ever dealt with the problem of evil. We're going to need a better sacrifice. We're going to need a sacrifice that can deal with evil once and for all. And those two things, a better king and a better priest and sacrifice, really converge here today in 2 Kings chapter 23. Because the kingship of Josiah and the way that he leads worship is going to foreshadow who the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, is going to be. And so our royal habit today is the habit 
of worship. And when you hear the word worship, you may instantly think of like, oh, that's the part of the service when we sing. Then we have the message, and that's a worship service. Well, music is definitely part of it, but here's why. Think about what we sang this morning. To God about his goodness. To God about his power, about his might, about his mercy. Essentially, worship is the adoration when we are just in love with who God is and then what we do with it. So worship music is music where we're singing to God about all of his goodness and his attributes, his justice, his righteousness, his grace. But I think as you'll see today, there's actually a lot in the life of Josiah that becomes worship more than just the singing. And it really starts when he gets in to the word of God, which is why when Chad explained a couple of weeks ago, all of this stuff he's going to pull out of the Bible isn't about trivia, it's about worship. So let's see what that looks like for Josiah in 2 Kings 23, starting with verse 1. Now the king sent them to gather all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem to him. The king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and with him all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the house of the Lord. Now for him, that means Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. All the words. And I love this picture because last week, or last chapter, when they found the Bible, Shaphan read it for himself, was so taken by it, he had to read it to the king. And he read the whole thing to the king. Now King Josiah is so taken by it, he has to read it to his people. The whole thing. So hidden in here is probably a good case for why we do verse by verse at our equipping service. I want to see all the words, right? But there's also a little something here about spiritual leadership. Like if you want to be a spiritual leader in your family, man, read them God's word. And I know there are pieces that are difficult to understand, but it was when Josiah got into the book, then it's no longer just who he hopes God is. Hey guys, you know, we've been hoping that maybe God would be merciful after all this stuff. It's actually in here. He says he delights to show mercy. Okay, what else is in here? What else is in here? And so it says in verse 3 that the king then stood by a pillar, made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book and all the people took a stand for the covenant. Here's the first thing I want us to see about worship today. When the right king sits on the throne, the king leads worship by the book. Now, I actually have a book called Worship by the Book, so I'm not clever enough to come up with that. (laughs) But when I read it, I thought it was going to be a book of like rules about how to do church. Uh, And when I actually read it, no, it was much more about how when you get into God's word, if this is not primarily a rule book, though it has rules, if it's not primarily about the future, but if this is God revealing himself to us, well, then no wonder it is the book that leads me to worship because here I begin to understand who God is, what his plan is for history and for the world and for me. So when the right king is on the throne, the king leads worship by the book. It reminded me a few years ago, a guy I used to play basketball with named DJ And we were playing at a church. So out of 15 or 20 guys playing basketball, probably two or three of us were Christ followers. 
But most of these guys were showing up for basketball. So the Navy base charged $6 to use their courts. The wide charged five bucks, the church was free. <laughs> so we knew that, but it was kind of, kind of a cool opportunity because then uh, the, the dues you had to kind of pay to play at the church was about halfway through the morning when guys are starting to get tired, take a little break, and we would just do a, a small devotional. Honestly, it was not unlike what our exploring service would be like here. Trying to think about guys who maybe are only slightly interested in God, Jesus, and the Bible, and how would you try to help them understand some of the key things about who God really is that maybe they'd never heard before. And so for the most part, you know, guys were, guys were polite. Some of them were more interested or less interested. You know, and DJ was a guy who would always just listen, but never really had comments. And then one day he showed up at basketball with a book. Well, who brings a book to basketball? Well, DJ did because he wanted to show it to me. And the book was just called The Story. Okay, well, tell me, tell me about your book. Well, he said that he was doing his laundry in his apartment and he put his stuff in the dryer and he went downstairs and he came back up and somebody had pulled his half-dried stuff out of the dryer because they needed it. <sighs> but there's only had about four minutes left, so he figured he would just wait. And he looked and on the corner of the counter, there was this book, The Story. So must have left his cell phone downstairs because he was bored enough. He thought, I'll read a book while I wait for laundry to dry. But when he picked up that book, he said it was telling him stuff about God that he'd never seen before. Talking about God as king. And, and if I use my words, how he'd realized he'd been sitting on the throne of his own life. But there was a God who wanted to be in control of his life. And he'd never heard this. And I'm thinking, yes, you did. We talked about it at basketball last week. <laughs> right? <laughs> But what was amazing to me was I later found out that this was sort of like a summary of the Bible, but using actual chapters from the Bible. So it's not a whole Bible. It's not like a, a pure translation, but it was the first time that he felt like he was actually hearing God's word himself. Something from Genesis, something from Kings, something from the Gospels, something from the prophets. And he said that was really eye-opening to him because all of the stuff that he had thought about God it was like now God was actually saying, this is who I am. It was through the book that DJ began to have a sense of who the real God was. And so I'm actually going to cheat just a little bit. I want to sneak back to one of our other spiritual habits, which was study. Because even in the chapter today, there are a lot of archaeological and historical details that can be confusing. And I know sometimes you sit down to read this and it feels like I finished the chapter, I got nothing out of it. But are you proud of me, God? Like, I woke up early, I did it. <laughs> so I want to help you just a little bit to feel like you can grab something when you read. And this, this is me too. I have that same experience. Some days I get an epiphany and it's like, oh my goodness, it comes to life. And other days it's like, maybe I'm doing it wrong, you know? So, so here's a, some simple handles that can help. Observation, interpretation, application, and actualization. Now the first three of these I hear all the time. Observation. It's just simply making observations in the passage. So these are the kinds of questions that anybody can answer, whether they've ever read it before or not, whether they understand it or can interpret it or know what it really means or not. Stuff like, who was there? What did they say? What, what kind of key words are being repeated throughout the text? So easy observation question, for example, from this chapter would be, you know, who read all the words of the book of the covenant to the people? The king. You don't even have to know who the king is. You're, you're literally just making an observation. The king read it. 
Observation then begins to lead us to interpretation questions. Well, why did he read it to all the people? Why did he read it to all the people? Why did he make a covenant? Right? That starts to tilt us into interpretation. And then that leads to questions of application. Well, if they did that, is there something there for me? You know, an example to follow, a danger to avoid, something that I could do based on what I've just learned or read or understood. But then this last one is my favorite. I picked this one up from a book called The Joy of Discovery. I love that as a way to describe reading the Bible. Like just keep going because you're going to find these gold nuggets. An actualization is because the application can be too easy to do nothing with. Like your application is love your neighbor. Seven days later, did you love your neighbor? Oh, I forgot. Whoops. <laughs> like that is me like all the time. I'm like, yes, amazing. Yeah. Pray in the morning. You're right. God encouraged people today. Next morning. Oh, whoops. Okay. Let's try it again, Lord. So actualization just simply, what are you actually going to do with the application? If it was love your neighbor, it's like clear and measurable in the next seven days. I'm going to love my neighbor by inviting them over for dinner, talking to God about them, helping them with the yard work, inviting them to go golfing. There's something that you actually plan to do. So I want us to think about some of those layers as we go through the remainder of this chapter and starting with that observation, I want us to start to notice keywords being repeated through these verses. So let's pick up in verse 4. And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest, the priests of the second order, and the doorkeepers to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the articles that were made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the host of heaven, and he burned them. I mean, we've seen guys remove it before, but this says, and he burned them. That's going to be a key word outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. So you can actually see the Kidron Valley here in this picture. And to the left, you're catching just a corner of the temple up on that hill. Uh, the hill in the background is actually the Mount of Olives where Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he was with his disciples before he ascended and where he tells us that he will return to when he comes back. So I show you this to get you to realize this is a real place. But not only that, the valley in between here is the Valley of Kidron. So if you think if all this junk was up there in the temple, it's literally like he's throwing it down the hill and when it lands at the bottom, he lights it on fire. And we're not just packing these away. Future kings might want idol worship. I don't know. Or, hey, but it was my dad's. It's hard to let go of. Like, no, we're done with this stuff. It's going to the Valley of Kidron and we're burning it to ash. Verse 5 then says, he removed the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense on the high places in the cities of Judah and in the places all around Jerusalem and those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun, to the moon, to the constellations and to all the host of heaven. Now we sang this morning about the stars and gave God glory for creating them. They were actually worshiping the stars. So that's another key word for us is that he's going to remove it, not only the objects but also the perpetrators these false high priests. And so here's really the, the, the second thing, that when the right king sits on the throne, the king removes obstacles to worship. And that is the bulk of what is happening in the chapter today. And so I'm actually going to pick up pace a little bit as we go through the next like dozen or so verses because I want you to really see how these key words come forward. So there are probably going to be details here that you're going to be like, what is that? Don't worry about it for today. But you're going to be like, hold on a second. Don't worry about it for today. 
We're going to go a little faster because I want you to see how as you observe key words, it starts to make the whole thing hold together. So let's pick up with verse 6. And he brought out the wooden image from the house of the Lord to the brook Kidron outside Jerusalem, burned it at the brook Kidron, and ground it to ashes. And he threw its ashes on the graves of the common people. Then he tore down the ritual booths of the perverted persons that were in the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for the wooden image. All right, so some more key words here. Burned it, ground it, tore it down. Verse 8. And he brought all the priests from the cities of Judah and defiled the high places. So essentially, the the typical way he does that is by putting something dead on it. Bones or, or burned bones. Because it makes it unclean, now it makes it useless, so no one can ever worship false gods in that place again. So he defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense from Geba to Beersheba. Also, he broke down the high places at the gates which were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were to the left of the city gate. Nevertheless, key note here, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brethren. So there are priests of the high places who don't want to let go of the high places. They don't come for the renewed worship to the Lord. They're hanging on to their trash. Verse 10, and he defiled, there's that word again, Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or daughter pass through the fire to Molech. Then he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance to the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the officer who was in the court. And he burned the chariots of the sun with fire, the altars that were on the roof, the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars which Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord. The king broke down and pulverized there. You know the word pulverized was in the Bible? I thought that was like Terminator 2, but it's right here. It's Josiah. Pulverized them there and threw their dust into the brook Kidron. Verse 13. Then the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem, which were on the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, king of Israel, had built. Guys, there is still stuff left from when Solomon went sideways. This was the stuff that Solomon had built for Ashtoreth, which was the abomination of the Sidonians, For Chemosh, the abomination of the Moabites, and for Milcom, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he broke in pieces the sacred pillars and cut down the wooden images and filled their places with the bones of men. Verse 15, moreover, the altar that was at Bethel and the high place which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, had made. Both that altar and the high place. What's he going to do? He broke down and burned the high place and crushed it to powder and burned the wooden image. So just think through the verses we just kind of rattled off together. He burned it, he ground it, he tore it down, defiled it, broke it down, defiled it, removed it, burned it, broke it down, pulverized it, defiled it, broke it down, broke it, burned it, crushed it, and burned it. Are you picking up on a theme here? (laughs) Right? Like, if this was the exploring service, this is where I would have Kenny come out and sing, taking care of business and working overtime. Work out! But it's not the exploring service, and I am clearly not Kenny. But Josiah's serious about this stuff. Right? 
think about how detailed this thing is. If you go back through that, it's every corner of the kingdom. From east to west and north to south, the high places, the low places, in the corners, in the shadows, everything. And so I want to tweak this, that it's not only that the king removes obstacles to worship, the king pulverizes obstacles to worship. And if this is all pointed to Jesus, think about what that means. Jesus, as the king of kings, wants to pulverize anything that gets in the way of my worship to him, my relationship to him, my obedience to him. And I think oftentimes we're comfortable with kind of like, I know it's not good, so I try not to think about the bad parts of it because I really like this other part. Does that sound like pulverize? You know where we think it's hard to let go of and, and I don't know, I, I probably should, I'll, I'll set it over here for now. Well, when Josiah sets it over here, it's in ashes in the Kidron Valley, right? The king wants to remove all of that stuff because he knows how good it is going to be. My friend Jim, back in Illinois, was part of a ministry called Celebrate Recovery. So if you've heard of Celebrate Recovery, it's basically a a Christ-centered 12-step program. And so when I first met him, he'd done a lot of healing and he was just kind of telling me his story about all the burdens in his life, all the sins that had been in his life, all the things that were off track with God that God kind of had to put back in order through this recovery ministry uh, to the point that now he was, he was healthy enough, he was helping lead it. But one of the things that he said that, that caught my attention the most, because it sounded like probably the scariest part, he said, one of the things we do, we take a fearless moral inventory of our lives. Uh, ooh. Do I ask him to tell me more about that? (laughs) Tell me more about that. Well, he said what he found was it's one of the hardest things to do. It sounds scary because to really go through my life with a fine-tooth comb, not just, dear Lord, you know, forgive me for my sins and uh, help, help me do good with my presentation today and amen. It's like to slow down and ask God, hey, where are there things in my life that you want to pulverize? He said it's really painful at first, but what he discovered was that there's always a, a piece of us that kind of wants to confess like to a point that we're comfortable with, but these other things, I just, it hurts too much to even think about it. And so he said that what he found when he did that fearless moral inventory, yes, it was painful, but he discovered he found so much more freedom because he was confessing things to God and believing he was forgiven except for that other stuff I haven't mentioned to God, which is not how it works, right? Like, when you're forgiven, you're forgiven. When you're saved, you're saved. But he realized by holding on to the guilt and regret of those things, it was leaving him feeling unforgiven. And that when he brought them out to God as part of this inventory, when he was willing to let God go from east to west and north to south, he found so much more freedom and joy. And so I would encourage you, whether you ever jump into a 12-step thing or not, I found that that actually has been really helpful in my own life. When I hit moments of crisis that I realize... There's something here that God wants to remove. And it can be a little scary and it can be a little painful, but I promise you, I promise you, because it's from the book, you're going to love him for it. When he heals you from some of those things, when you see how much better it is without the high places, you're going to worship him for it. That was what Josiah was finding. And so let's see how he finishes this work. In verse 16, It says that as Josiah turned, 
He saw the tombs that were on the mountain and sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed, who proclaimed these words. Now, we don't have time for 1 Kings 13 today, so I'm just going to tell you, it's a strange chapter, a lot of its own stuff to deal with. But about 300 years before this, in 1 Kings 13, a man of God, a prophet, prophesied that one day a king named Josiah would do exactly what Josiah just did. So without turning there, I show you that because it means that when God says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. And if we are thinking a little bit about how this might be about Jesus, did you know God can predict the king by name hundreds of years before he ever shows up? And so the guys around Josiah, it says that he said to them, what gravestone is this that I see? So the men of the city told him, it's the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and proclaimed these things which you have done against the altar of Bethel. And he said, verse 18, let him alone, let no one move his bones. So they let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came from Samaria. Now Josiah also took away all the shrines of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made to provoke the Lord to anger. And he did to them according to all the deeds he had done in Bethel. Broke it down, burned it, defiled it. He executed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned men's bones on them and he returned to Jerusalem. So here you're seeing the picture of the refiner's fire. Because did you notice these high priests that he just executed? In this entire chapter, they're the only people that get burned. Everything else is he's removing the stuff. But remember, it was those priests who wouldn't let go. And so they end up getting destroyed with that stuff. And so sometimes you'll hear us explain how God has to deal with evil. And evil is like trash. And so God is going to take all the trash and burn it. But God has made a way for me not to get burned up with my trash. You see, as a follower of Christ, if you trust him as your forgiver, as your leader, as your king, well, then it talks about a refiner's fire because Jesus is the one who takes away sin. Like Josiah is taking these things away and burning them in Kidron. Jesus takes them away from me and he deals with the judgment. And what's left is a son or a daughter of the king who is being made into something beautiful and pure. And so in verse 21, with all of this negative stuff removed, now they get to celebrate the Passover, that sacrifice that looked forward to Jesus' own sacrifice for us. You see it all coming together. The king, the priest, the sacrifice, the temple, all in this one moment. And so verse 21 says that the king commanded all the people, saying, Keep the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in this book of the covenant. And such a Passover surely had never been held since the days of the judges who judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was held before the Lord in Jerusalem. And we did a deep dive on this the week before Easter. So I just want to highlight a couple of things for you here. Notice that it's saying this Passover had not happened since the days of the judges. That means not before all the kings, even since before David. 
But we know that Hezekiah celebrated the Passover, for example. So what does it mean that a Passover like this hasn't happened? Well, scholars tend to agree that it's all in the word all. That this wasn't just the faithful few. This wasn't just David and his men. The king commanded all the people. You see, when the right king sits on the throne, the king brings people together for worship. Right, Josiah doesn't want to worship alone. Shaphan doesn't want to worship alone. When the right king sits on the throne, he brings people together for worship. I'll never forget when I first met my friend Matthew because um, I met him at church, but not on a weekend. It was like he came in in the middle of the week looking like a little out of sorts, just a little panicky, like there was something really important on his mind. And you never quite know where that's going, so you're like, Lord, just you know, help me be a good listener. And, and as we were talking, he's like, you got to help me find people. I'm like, okay, I think that's for the police, but I'm listening, go ahead, you know. And as we're talking more and more, the, the first time I've ever met him, so I don't know how this even happened, but he'd started reading the Bible. And as he read the Bible, he realized it was talking about stuff in his life that wasn't supposed to be in his life. And as he kept reading, he was feeling convicted. And then he read that it was Jesus who could deal with this. And so basically on his own, reading God's word, he had become a Christ follower, given his life to Jesus. So he shows up to me and he says, but then I, as I kept reading, it says all this stuff like love one another, encourage one another, admonish one another, uh, bear each other's burdens. And he's like, I don't have a one another. You got to help me find some people. Help me find some people that also want to follow Jesus. I'm like, I think I can do that. Welcome to church, you know? He's like, but what he was trying to figure out was, does that just mean I'm supposed to come to church on Sunday? Like, did, is this it? Are we doing it? Because what he felt like was, I'm going to come to church, I'm going to sing, I'm going to hear the message, but I've got to really like be with people if I'm going to encourage them. And so he started getting into a group study, he started getting to know other guys. And I think that's such a huge piece of what Josiah is trying to do here. That it's not just one man who's faithful and the others kind of benefit from it, which they definitely do, but that what the king wants for us, what the king of kings wants for us, the reason we're described as the body of Christ is we need each other. In one literal sense, just to obey him when he says love one another, encourage one another, build one another up, because he knows that we need each other. We need to worship together. And so it says, as it kind of finishes Josiah's story, verse 24 Moreover, Josiah put away those who consulted mediums and spiritists, the household gods and idols, all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might perform the words of the law which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Now before him, ooh, look at this, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses. And nor after him did any arise like him. I mean, that's it, right? Josiah is the king we've been waiting for. Except look at verse 26. Nevertheless, shoot. Guys, we were that close. <laughs> Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger was aroused against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will also remove Judah from my sight as I have removed Israel and will cast off this city, Jerusalem, which I have chosen and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. Oh, what? 
I thought the whole thing was like, if we turn, then he'll forgive us. I mean, the prophets are saying that all the time. It's Isaiah 55, it's in Jeremiah. If at any time I've declared destruction on a nation and that nation repents, I will relent. How, how does it still say nevertheless? Well, what is revealed to us in the prophets, they actually point to this moment and they say that even though Josiah turned, the people didn't. As good of a king as he was, did you notice? He could command them. He commanded them to keep the Passover. Josiah could bring reform, but he couldn't change hearts. And you know what Josiah did at the end of his life? He died, which is what most people do at the end of their life. <laughs> and that sounds like, well, yeah, I mean, they all have eventually, but that's the point. You're thinking, let's get it. Can we at least get like, Manasseh was 55 years of junk. Like, how about 55 years of Josiah? But you're always one generation away from another evil king. In fact, if you look at the end of this chapter, you can see kind of a summary here on the screen. Josiah is good. Now, I'm just going to summarize this for you. But Josiah is good, but he gets up with Pharaoh, mixed up with Pharaoh Necho of Egypt. Pharaoh Necho actually brings a warning from God, don't fight me, you'll die. Josiah fights anyway, Josiah dies. Just like that, we've lost the best king we ever had. His son comes into power and lasts for three months, and that was enough to know that he was evil. Pharaoh Necho from Egypt removes him from the throne, takes him to captivity where he dies, and then the Pharaoh puts Eliakim, his other son, on the throne, changes his name to Jehoiakim, and Jehoiakim is all in on partnering with Egypt. He's evil, he's working with the other evil nation, he's forcing people to pay silver and gold to Egypt, and it's like, I'm telling you, like eight verses ago, things were so good, what happened? You see how these things are coming together to point to the hope that we really need. We need hope. We need something better than Josiah. We need something better than his Passover celebration. And it's why the prophets begin to speak about a Messiah who will be the king who sits on the throne forever. They start to talk about a Messiah who will actually be the once for all sacrifice. That after all of these hundreds of years of the covenant not working, like he commanded them everything and it still didn't change hearts. They still broke the law. They still end up in captivity. But now there's coming a Messiah who fulfills everything and brings a new covenant in his blood. You see, Josiah as king tried to lead people to worship but the king of kings is worthy of worship. That's the only king who is worthy of worship. Because Jesus fulfills all of it. I mean, you, you think about what's happening here. They find the book of the law, God revealing himself, and every page of it points to Christ, who is called the word of God. God revealing himself to us. He is the king who pulverizes obstacles to worship who is absolutely, Philippians says, going to finish the good work that he started in you. He's not going to leave something in the corner of some temple that, nah, all gone. 
That's the work that he's doing in us. That's why we can say things like, I'm not where I want to be, but I'm not where I was either because Jesus is working on me. He is my king and he is the new covenant. He is the one who unites us through his spirit in worship together. So you ready for the application? Worship King Jesus. I'll bet you never saw that coming. But what are you actually going to do with it? Right, here's the actualization piece. And you're thinking right now, oh, he's going to call the band out. We're going to sing a song. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Because that is one part of it. And in fact, if you look on the pathway this week, there's a QR code that will pull up a Second Kings worship set. Songs all about Jesus as the King of Kings. So maybe you say, hey, this week, I'm going to scan the QR code. I'm going to sing those songs in my living room or wherever. Listen to them while you're working out. Something focus you on the king. But it's more than just singing. Like you look at Josiah, everything in this chapter is worship. When he tries to help somebody else understand God's word. When he spends time letting God remove things from his life that bring false worship. So what else could you actually do? You know, maybe it's like uh, our middle schoolers just got back from happy church. Spreading mulch, dealing with garbage, taking care of kids down there who are in need. Or our high schoolers that are in Cancun right now. Or maybe it's if you serve here at Horizon or in your neighborhood. Like when you go and serve God, not for a feather in the cap, but because you just love him. He's so awesome and you can't wait to do that together. God, let's, let's go serve together. I, I talked to one of our greeters this morning and she said uh, she, said she was smiling at everybody out there because she wants them to feel like this is happy church. And we're glad they're here. That's worship. When you give, not out of a guilt trip or because somebody told you you have to or because that's the way the math works out. When you give because you talk to God and man, you just love him. You adore his goodness, his creativity. That's worship. When you just spend a quiet moment telling him what's so great about him, that's worship. So I'd like to do that with you right now. And so I'm actually going to ask if you would just bow your heads and if you just want to take this moment just in your own heart to tell God what you adore about him, to tell King Jesus why he is so great to you, and then I'll close us. King Jesus, we praise you because we know that by you and for you and through you all things are made. You are worthy of our worship because you are the one who shed your blood to purchase us for God. Because of your forgiveness, because of your kindness, because of your justice, because of your strength. We love you and we worship you. King Jesus, it is in your name that we pray. Amen.